This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. How have changes in the media ecosystem impacted knowledge of issues and informed participation in elections? How did media coverage of the 2020 elections compare to 2016? Why is there so much distrust in the news media? How does the current media scape, with the ability to pick and choose from divergent news sources, impact the ability of Americans to distinguish credible information from misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda? And how has the rise of social media impacted elections? Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm Kara Ong Whaley, your co-host, and co-hosting along with me in this episode is Abe Goldberg. We talk with JMU professor of political science, Dr. David Jones, about the implications of the media for democratic participation, practice, and governance. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Jones, in your decades of research and observation, what have been the most significant changes in media coverage of elections? And how have the changes in the media ecosystem impacted democratic participation practice and governance? And the scary part of that question is, is that I've actually been doing it for decades. Uh, so I'll, I'll, try to, I'll try to adjust for that. First of all, thank you for, um, for inviting me to join this conversation. And, and the, the question you just asked is, reminds me how, how many changes there have been and how vast the changes um, we have experienced have um, and so I, you know, I, I can only focus on a couple. Uh, the most dramatic and obvious change has been the, uh, the fragmentation of the media environment. The, you know, we now have a vast array of choices, of media choices. So that means that people can, and some people do, seek out partisan sources that provide information in ways that reinforce rather than challenge their existing views. Now, I say some do. I think the scale of this phenomenon is exaggerated sometimes. I mean, most people have pretty diverse media diets, but there is still the opportunity for people to just limit themselves to these so-called echo chambers. Well, the people who do take advantage of these new choices are highly engaged partisans who always vote. And then you've got another set of people who, given all of these choices, choose to tune out as much as they can. And these are individuals who vote only in presidential elections or maybe not at all. They tend to be centrist or just nonpartisan. They don't think, spend a whole lot of time thinking about politics. So except for presidential elections, the electorate is uh, kind of has a bias towards highly engaged, politically active partisans. And many of these politically active partisans are, have these partisan media diets. Um, now, so that's, that's one change. The, the change that concerns me the most is the decline in trust in traditional news media the decline in trusting just conventional journalism. And that uh, that's especially true among conservatives. The In various ways, the news media's gatekeeper function has been diminished, partly by this lack of trust that cuts across partisan boundaries, but it's especially acute among conservatives. 
but also has been diminished by the collapse of the business model for media outlets that do journalism, you know, t- traditional new, uh, news outlets. And that's especially true at the local level. So we have a you know weak local news media. And uh, meanwhile, national media outlets are thriving, especially in the last four years, especially in the Trump era. But back to this trust problem, at least 30%, probably more of Americans no longer trust them. And so that leaves a media environment that's really ripe for the spread of misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is just information that happens to be false. Disinformation is the deliberate spread of false information. And there's a lot of both going on. I want to ask you about news media coverage of the elections. There was much lamenting and hand-wringing um, by, by the me- news media itself, but also by media critics after the 2016 elections about how the media covered the candidates, um, how negative the tone of coverage was. I think by some accounts it was 90% negative in tone of coverage. Um, the need to do a better job to listen to and connect with the public and the issues that they face, and the false equivalencies that misled voters and the choices they faced in the elections. How would you assess news media coverage of the 2020 elections? Uh, Did the news media learn anything from 2016? And what should the media have done differently this time around? Well, I should first say it's really too early to reach any general conclusions. We really need to wait for systematic content analysis that my communication colleagues, I'm sure, will do and many political scientists will do. I expect many of the same patterns will emerge, although I want to talk a little bit about the specific critiques of 2016 that I think the news media were responsive to. Um, But some of the patterns are familiar uh, not surprisingly, most uh, election news, as always, focused on the you know what we call the horse race aspects of the election. Uh, there are a lot of strategy stories, you know, who's ahead and who's behind, but also how the different campaigns are adapting to those dynamics. Um, the as was as was always is always the case. Those stories and that coverage was informed and shaped by. Uh, polls, right? I mean, it's easy to do a, a story about a poll because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a number that you can report and, uh, and it's fairly straightforward. The problem was, uh, as was the case in 2016, is that there were systematic biases that were not as bad as I think some of the initial criticisms suggest, but, um, but I think it's safe to conclude that those polls systematically underestimated turnout for President Trump. And so you had this running narrative through much of the general election campaign this fall that was about, you know, Joe Biden has a steady lead and it's, it's uh, if there's any variation at all, it's getting larger. It never really got tighter according to the polls. Well, that wasn't true. Uh, it turns out that the race was probably much tighter all along. And, uh, and so that narrative was was a li- at least a little bit off base. And, and, and it's possible that voters responded in particular ways and that certainly campaign contributions um, were, uh, were, were driven, I think, in part by uh, what appeared to be tighter races according to polls but didn't turn out to be true. Um, you know, strong leads in, by, by Joe Biden or Donald Trump in certain states that turned out to be tighter than they really were. So that was... Um, 
that that uh, that distorted narrative, I think, was at least a little bit problematic. Uh, all right, so that's that's part of it, and I think we'll we'll be able to assess just how bad it was in a couple of months. I think it's also true that the media really still are not equipped to do meaningful stories about the concerns of the public and the challenges they face, and instead they rely too much on you know, this sort of proverbial interview with, uh, with a handful of white Midwesterners eating in diners, right? So that you, you saw plenty of those stories in, in, the, in the, uh, the aftermath of the 2016 election, trying to make sense out of uh, how Donald Trump won the election. So, so there was a lot of that and not a whole lot of, I think, a, a meaningful coverage of, of uh, underserved communities uh, and, and people who who don't vote, right? I mean, we heard a lot from people who did. Uh, to be fair, though, I think there's probably a lot of good journalism out there, and and critics, media scholars, don't pay much attention to those one-off feature stories about individual citizens and their families, and maybe that's for, for good reason. I want to talk about uh, a couple of actual positive developments. Uh, one is a, is a minor one, but I think an important one, and one that we've experienced recently. I think the media did a good job, the traditional news media did a good job setting reasonable expectations about how long it would take to count the vote. I think that we we heard that story, we read that story um, days, if not weeks in advance. And so when that actually transpired, I think people were very frustrated, but it was not a shock to see that it would take states several days to actually come up with a final vote count. All right, so that's, I think, a minor but an, an important uh, positive development, and I think the media deserves a lot of credit for that, for setting that tone. I think more significant, um, and one we're still grappling with, is how the media, how the news media adjusted to covering Donald Trump in 2020 versus 2016, covering Donald Trump as president versus Trump uh, covering Donald Trump as a candidate in 2016. In 2016, generally speaking, the news media treated Donald Trump like a normal candidate. And so his rallies were covered live and without much scrutiny. Um, And many stories reported what he said without a whole lot of scrutiny either. By 2020, and really early in his presidency, the media were much more likely to call him out, attaching language to the reporting, such as, you know, President Trump made unfounded claims about voter fraud these labels that social media outlets attached to a lot of what he said. That, it's important to note that that was a very awkward change for journalists who are uncomfortable with being so explicit in their coverage of a political candidate, of an elected official. Um, they, did, they made this adjustment uh, slowly over time, and, and they did it in for a, a number of reasons, largely in response to the criticism that you're referring to, the sort of postscript after 2016 that said the media fell short. They amplified uh, Donald Trump without enough scrutiny. They gave him way too much coverage during the Republican primaries. And so they were, to some extent, responsive to that criticism, um, but also a, a, a sincere conviction that Donald Trump was different than normal politicians. Uh, you know, look no further than than I think the accurate reports that he made more than 22,000 false or misleading claims as president. And then, of course, he he has declared war on the media throughout his presidency, used terms like fake news and the enemy of the people, really dangerous, I think, terms to attach to such an important set of institutions in our system. 
The problem, uh, you know, so, so the news media made this adjustment and, and used language that we don't normally see and labels and, uh, and corrections, you know, live fight, fact checking, this sort of thing that the media are reluctant to do. Well, the problem is that um, that, could have been, that was a positive development, but it exacerbated this just distrust among conservatives, even those who were uncomfortable with Trump. And so, uh, and so that, that problem of the lack of trust among a large chunk of our population has only gotten worse. Um, and um, so, this ad, so there was this added scrutiny, but that scrutiny had minimal credibility with, what, 30 to 40 percent of the population. And that partly explains why, um, you know, even with this running narrative about how the election was going to take a long time to count, um, the, 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 the stories about how Donald Trump was going to, uh, was going to cast out on the, the results of the election if it didn't go his way. We got plenty of those stories in advance, but it, the results are the same. Um, it, it, the majority of Republicans appear to believe that the election was rigged and, and it wasn't. I mean, that is false information that has been embraced by a large portion of the population. So we've got a problem there. David, we know that the news media have a bias toward the dramatic and, and that horse race coverage dominates uh, election season relative to policy coverage. How have these trends impacted knowledge of issues and informed participation in elections from your perspective? Uh, well, it means that if citizens are relying on the news media for information about important policy differences between the candidates, they're going to have to look really hard. Um, and that's an old problem. It, it, this, this, the, the story exists. The, the coverage is there. There are, there is, you know, sometimes just a one-off story or set of stories when the candidates roll out their major policy positions. Um, policy stories are difficult within the conventions of journalism. They're difficult to cover without favoring one side over the other. They're harder to produce. They're just more complicated stories compared with, you know, a report on uh, fundraising numbers and poll numbers and, uh, and, a, and a, you know, a sort of strategy story based on conversations with sources within the campaign. It's an easy story to do. Um, but more importantly for journalism, once a, once a candidate establishes a policy position, it probably won't change. And so it's really not newsworthy. It's only newsworthy once when the policy position is rolled out. Now, and, and if a candidate actually makes a change, if they shift, that's, that's the story you don't want, right? That's a flip-flop. That's inconsistency. So that may be interesting. That might be something that, um, that the news media will pick up on, but not in a good way. And so I'm afraid that... Um, that problem has been with us for a long time, and I don't see much hope in that shifting. So if I'm an undecided voter, should I not rely on the media coverage of the campaign to make informed choices if I'm basing my decision on policy preferences? Well, I think that uh, if, if the undecided voter is just paying attention to the day-to-day -day machinations of the campaign and watching and consuming news on the fly, they're just not going to get a whole lot of policy coverage. But that's a typical, your undecided voter who's going to vote, right, who's actually interested in making an informed decision, 
they're going to do what everybody else does and just Google and uh, and they and hopefully they will encounter useful information sources and that might take them to new sources. Um, they could actually search through the archives of the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal for that policy story. They can find those stories exist, but they're they're few and far between. And they'll probably, to be fair, the, that story will probably be as good uh, an analysis of policy positions as you're going to find. You know, if you just rely on the campaign's websites, you're going to get you're going to get the perspective of the candidates. But if you want an analysis of policy differences, you're going to have to dig deep. David, you you mentioned this issue of trust and and how it's declined earlier in our conversation, and I'm wondering if we can return to that topic. Um, This year in September, Gallup found that just 9% in the United States trusted mass media, quote unquote, a great deal, and 31% a fair amount. Um, When we dig into that data and look at trust by party party identification, um, we see that there's been a steep decline in Republicans' trust in the media starting in 2016 and that it hasn't recovered. Um, At the same time, Trust by those who identify as Democrats in the media has risen sharply since President Trump was elected and over the past four years. And it's been the highest um, trust in in the media has been the highest that Gallup has measured for any party in the past two decades. Um, But at the same time this year, we've now seen. Um, a 63 percentage point gap in trust um, uh, between political party groups, which is which is the highest gap that they have on record. And I think they've been asking this question, the same question since 1972. Other survey research has found the same. Um, Pew, for example, has found that Americans are also sharply divided along partisan lines, um, and that decline has particular uh, decline in, in in trust has grown over the last five years, particularly among conservatives. Um, why is there so much distrust in the news media and what can and should be done to address it? Well, some of that mistrust is, is earned. Um, it's true that most journalists are liberal Democrats and they vote accordingly. And that's just a sort of a work culture issue that you see in journalism you also, we can talk about this later, you also see it in tech and uh, tech firms. And I think it largely explains, you know, the sort of prevalence of progressive thought and um, the tech industry explains why there's been, um, there's, there's been an, a, a willingness, at least at Facebook and Twitter, to moderate content and to rein in some of the spread of misinformation. So part of it is a work culture issue. Journalists are liberal Democrats and they vote accordingly. Um, and that's important. So it, it, um, to some extent that shouldn't matter, right? Because we like to think of journalists as objective providers of information, but we also know that's really not true. One of the changes, the major changes that I didn't talk about in the first question is that the news has become more analytical and interpreted. So the news media don't just report objective facts. They, uh, they analyze the who, what, where, you know, the why and how and that sort of thing. And so as the news has become more analytical, it's, it's bound to the, the orientations of the journalists who write, produce those stories, just bound to seep into their language, into story selection, etc. Um, 
but other biases are more important. You, you mentioned in an earlier question the bias toward negativity, um, political news, especially news about national candidates and presidential candidates and public officials is uh, the, the coverage tends to be far more negative than positive. There's a bias toward conflict. Uh, and then there's a more interesting, I'm, I'm sorry, a more um, uh, important bias toward good stories. Uh, it's what, what one scholar calls the interesting bias. And so, uh, and so I think, um, you know, there's just a, a journalists are always looking for, and they, and they will often favor candidates, you know, if we're looking at election news, they'll favor candidates who represent just interesting stories. And so that partly explains why Barack Obama, when he ran for president for the first time in 2008, his coverage departed from the norm and that it was more positive than negative. And part of that could be explained by ideological bias. But I think most of it could be explained by the fact that Barack Obama represented a great story for journalism. You know, for journalists, this was just a, you know, he was, was going to be the first black American president. Um, he, uh, he ran a, a compelling campaign. He ran an innovative campaign. So the horse race stories, which, which dominated coverage in 2008, as it always did, you know, those stories were about, here's this candidate who's doing really well. He's running an innovative campaign. And when he's elected, if he's elected, um, it will, it will, he will make history. Okay. So, uh, so that, that those are more important biases. But um, and it's also worth pointing out that citizens on the left also don't trust the media. Only when Trump was elected did we see an uptick in media trust among Democrats. All right, so so there's there's plenty of mistrust to go around. But you're right; it's accelerated primarily on the on the right, and I think there's some reason for that. Um, but sometimes that criticism, I think, is misplaced. It's also important to note that this um, decline in trust is part of a global trend toward declining trust in all political institutions, including the news media. So it's not just the U.S., it's not just the media, it's all institutions that have some sort of political orientation, all public institutions. It also doesn't help that, um, that today, unlike when we first started asking this survey question, you know, what does it mean when we ask about people's impressions of the media? Uh, you know, that term encompasses so many outlets, not just the news media. And we can all, when asked that question, imagine media outlets that we, you know, even if you, res even if you like the news media, there are all these other media outlets out there that you don't like. So that um, the, the complexity of our opinions toward the media is captured, I think. You know, we try, try to conflate too many things when asked about the media. I'm afraid this is something we're just going to have to live with. You know, I think this is part of a larger problem. You know, you mentioned distrust in media, all political institutions, but we see it in higher education as well, don't we? Yeah, that's right. How does this current media scape with the ability to pick and choose from divergent news sources impact the ability of Americans to distinguish credible information from misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda, and how did divergent sources impact the elections this year? Well, it's, it's important to note that most Americans actually have a pretty diverse media diet, and and there's a lot of research that backs that up. And we've been long concerned about 
Uh, and I've done my own research on the capacity for people to selectively expose themselves to like-minded reinforcing media outlets. And we consistently find over and over again that people, to a remarkable degree, uh, tend to get uh, tend to inform themselves in a variety of different ways. Even those who seek out partisan media also rely on conventional news sources. And this, this echo chamber phenomena seems to be limited to a small subset of the population. But I don't want to understate this, this, uh, this phenomenon. These are regular voters. And all you need is a few people who are impacted through this echo chamber to change an election, change the results of an election. You know, you have marginal effects in any election cycle. Really too early to tell about 2020. Um, but in 2016, uh, that's just the, the, uh, the overall summary, I think, of what we found in 2016 is that research showed that misinformation was indeed widely circulated and shared um, and mostly by people, not bots. Right. This was, a, this was an organic process and the scale of it was pretty significant, but the impact was was limited. In other words, people didn't necessarily believe what they were seeing. They may have seen that ridiculous story about how how, how the Pope was had endorsed Donald Trump, but most people didn't believe it. And the people who believed it already were inclined to support Donald Trump. So, so you know the, what we call media facts here, once again for the hundredth time, showed up turned out to be pretty limited. Twenty twenty may be different, um, and 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 I think we can just turn to one key difference, and that is that the number one source of false information is the president of the United States. The, the number one source of false information about the coronavirus is President Trump, not Russian bots, not Sean Hannity, and, and, and ditto for false information about so-called voter fraud. And the president has the megaphone that comes with the office, and the news media can fact check and label all they want, but those that misinformation still circulates. So, for example, right now we have about three quarters of Trump supporters think that Joe Biden won the election only because of fraud, and that was that, that's a that's a flip from before the election. So that means that on January twentieth, Joe Biden will take the oath of office, knowing that most Republicans think he did so through fraud and that his election was illegitimate. Uh, and, and so, the, and the president is responsible for this fiction, not social media and not the news media. I mean, they, to some extent, amplified, conveyed um, the, those messages, but uh, the, you know, whoever's the president of the United States have a mega, has a megaphone that's almost impossible to take away. David, I wonder if you can talk about how the rise of social media has impacted how elections are covered and how election news is consumed. Yeah, I think the most important impact of the social of social media is on their their distribution of news. And social media don't actually do, um, you know, Twitter and Facebook. They don't do reporting. They don't really provide content. They, um, they're, they're, they're to some extent are platforms that are now starting to appreciate that they're more than platforms. And I'll talk about that in just a second. So distribute the, the, the experience of, of politics through social media. Many Americans 
now experience the election through their social media feeds, through the stories that are shared by their friends, and they encounter content that the various social media algorithms predict will be engaging. Well, for, for the content providers, the, the news media and other providers of political content that's relevant for election, that gives them much more precise metrics on what people want to read and see. So they're even more sensitive to audience preferences than they were during the television era when we used to wring our hands about how commercialized the media had become and they're only concerned about giving the people what they want and you know they, they don't spend enough time on policy and too much time on, on, on sort of sensational content. So, well, now we have better data <laughs> and, and the data is, is suggests that people are interested in particular things and not necessarily interested in the sorts of information that we uh, think foster a healthy democracy. So election news, like all news, is produced in ways that are, that is designed to foster social media engagement, particularly the sharing, particularly sharing and retweeting journalists will sometimes joke that that the worst kind of laziest and most superficial story they do, they're the ones that get the most shares. And, and you know, the serious policy stories uh, don't get that level of attention. So the news cycle is now shaped by what goes viral on social media. So this is feedback loop. And why we see, you know, even though we have all of these choices and all of these different ways to experience political content, we, we, we sometimes will all be obsessed over some minor viral phenomenon that has some sort of political implications. Now, um, people don't just share random stories uh, during election season. They share stories that favor the candidate they support. And they especially, I mean, more importantly, share stories that are damaging to the candidate they oppose. So your typical, you know, engaged news uh, voters newsfeed depends on their network and what content they engage with on social media, and who their friends are and who's the, the friends that they respond to and engage with the most. And so, you know, for someone who's paying close attention, we use this term doom scrolling to describe the experience, especially on Twitter of just, you know, when uh, three days before the election, you're just obsessed with all of these stories that you're seeing that that are overwhelmingly negative you know it's just a sort of toxic information climate that people are are experiencing and, and what's changed i think is that sometimes uh those that sometimes that content is shared is provided by respectable news outlets and sometimes not now i think we spend less and less time thinking about what the experience is like for less engaged citizens the people who may not be regular voters and what this experience must mean, must be like for them well a lot of times just from their own behavior on social media they're not their you know, their algorithm is not sending them sharing content that they that is highly political that's not something they're interested in if they're tuning out their friends who are sharing political content then there's going to be less of that content on their feed uh, but when they do see it, they're seeing this overwhelmingly hostile, if you want to call it a conversation taking place online. And so, it, it, you know, if you're in the category of someone who's not paying a whole lot of attention, but all you see is this, um, is this toxic 
back and forth on social media, then what a turnoff that must be. I this this election in particular, um, you know, Walter Lippmann is is one of my <laughs> favorite authors, but you know, just thinking about the impact of social media, um, I, he has a quote that's you know, where where we all think alike, no one thinks very much, <laughs> um, and and that kind of feels to me like what we you know what we've been seeing with with these trends in election stories that go viral where there isn't much substance there, but it just kind of takes up all the air in the room. Well, if I, if I can um, point to another author and book to recommend um, that's, that seem, and some, now seems relevant again, it's a classic book, um, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which he was wringing his hands about television and, and just how rapid and superficial political content was. And, but I, but it, it, the, the parallels are, remarkable. David, Twitter and Facebook claimed before the Senate Judiciary Committee this week that they were more aggressive this year than ever uh, in labeling misleading posts, clamping down on conspiracy theories and amplifying credible information about voting. How would you assess their efforts and what do you make of this practice? Uh, I, I applaud the effort. Um, and until recently, social media outlets saw themselves as neutral platforms for information, good and bad. And they're now um, responding to pressure from multiple sources. Um, and I think underappreciated, back to the sort of work culture aspect of journalism, um, they, uh, to some extent, people at, uh, you know, the senior executives at Twitter and Facebook were responding to pressure from their employees. We're very upset about what happened in 2016, and uh, and and then throughout the Trump presidency, I think we're exerting more and more pressure to to step up efforts to do content, what they call content moderation. So their employees are exerting pressure. I think consumers, to some extent, um, in different ways, on the on the left and the right, we're exerting pressure. And then Congress, of course, has had these hearings, including the example from from earlier this week. Uh, now, Congress is really just holding hearings, right? But I think that they are, to some extent, responding and making changes in anticipation and, and to, to stave off efforts by Congress to be more aggressive and make policy changes that they'll have to account for. So they rather kind of do this themselves, and I think to some extent they have. But the, the response has been very mixed. Um, and the mixed response reminds us of the perils of gatekeeping. And so here you have, you have Twitter and Facebook um, uh, who are engaging in journalism-like decisions. Uh, and as with journalism, content moderation means you're making decisions that some people don't like. And you make mistakes. Like sometimes you shut down conversations that shouldn't be shut down. Sometimes you, um, as they, I think it was a mistake. You know, I, I generally think it was a mistake to to uh, shut down the New York Post for their reporting, even though that reporting was problematic. Um, it's still the New York Post is a news outlet with its flaws, and they probably should have been given the benefit of the doubt. And they were, and their coverage that story got enough scrutiny as it was because it appeared on social media. So mistakes are going to be made. Uh, decisions will be second guessed. 
And that's going to come with the territory here. Um, here's the thing, though. The bottom line is that misinformation is still spreading despite these efforts. You know, labeling the president's tweets as misleading doesn't mean those tweets uh, are embraced by supporters. Also doesn't help that um, YouTube doesn't has not attracted the same level of scrutiny. And uh, so, yes, Twitter and Facebook are engaging and more content moderation. YouTube is really not. Um, they're not really part of that conversation. And of course, they're massive. I think in part because it's very hard to, um, it's much easier to monitor text than it is to swim through hours and hours of video. Um, for, but for whatever reason, YouTube uh, isn't really getting the scrutiny that it deserves. And there's all kinds of interesting research emerging about the recommender algorithm for YouTube that sends people to more and more extreme content. And the more they watch, uh, the deeper that hole gets. And I think that's underappreciated and probably hasn't been getting the scrutiny that it deserves. If I can ask a follow-up to that question, too, um, you know, we've also seen that as Facebook and Twitter and other platforms have stepped up fact-checking and content moderation, um, other platforms, which have already existed, um, have seen a surge, especially post-election, in users who um, are following conservative pundits on those platforms, so Parler, MeWe, and Newsmax. I wonder if we should be concerned that more extreme echo chambers will emerge because of some of the pushback towards to to moderation, content moderation, and and whether we should be concerned that that could also foster more extreme political movements. I think I think the concern is warranted, but um, but I I think the size of the audience matters. One of the reasons that Facebook and Twitter are so important is because they're massive reach and they're diverse reach. Now, most people don't actually go to Facebook to catch up on the news, but they encounter political content anyway. And, and, and you know, the typical person's Facebook feed is politically diverse unless they actively go through, as many people do, and unfriend or unfollow the people they, um, they your crazy uncle or rants about this and that. Um, there's some of that, but generally speaking, it's just a, it reaches a lot of people. And I just don't, you know, the, I think the shortcoming, uh, the weakness of these emerging outlets will be that they're only speaking to each other. Right. So it, so yes, I think the potential for the echo chamber problem is there, but I'm not sure that it goes far beyond that small group of people. But uh, stay tuned. I think this is an early development. David, as a final question, we ask all of our guests, what would you do to strengthen our democracy? I'm going to start with something really straightforward and focused on our topic. If you value high quality journalism, pay for it. And, and you know, if you're part of an institution that has a subscription, great. But if you're, if you're avoiding content because you have to pay for it, understand that that content is as a price tag attached to it because it's expensive to produce. And if you want if you want good quality journalism, you, we've got to support it financially. And right now for, uh, even for uh, media outlets that, are, that get large audiences, their business model isn't quite working. There just aren't enough people who are willing to pay for the content. 
and the advertising revenue isn't sufficient. In, in the category of the media, there's there's always this recommendation that we should do more lead, media literacy. I think that's good. I mean, it's sort of harmless, but I don't think it's I don't think it is that effective. Um, I think, of course, I think it's good that people become critical consumers of information. Um, but alas, most people just aren't going to do that. And so I think it's only as useful as it goes. In terms of strengthening the democracy, I, I am in favor of, of structural changes at the government level that um, foster uh, more majoritarian, majoritarian tendencies in the U.S. system uh, to make the system more small d democratic. But on the subject of the media, um, I, you know, I do think social media platforms have a role to play in terms of the spread of misinformation and content moderation. But I, I, I'm just not sure what that is yet. I mean, I think that's where, that, that's my concerns on this topic today are primarily about the dangerous spread of misinformation and disinformation. I don't know what the fix is, but I think it's essential to strengthening our democracy. So maybe check back in a couple of years. Dr. David Jones, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Democracy Matters. Thank you. It was my pleasure and thank you for the time.